Well, uh, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, or is it good afternoon? Uh, welcome to LSE's Literary Festival. This is, as The Guardian describes it, a cerebral event and not uh, an opportunity for champagne swigging and meeting the stars, although I'm surrounded by stars up here. This was the description of the LSE's Literary Festival in The Guardian um, list of events for this week. I actually thought about bringing a bottle of champagne along, but I thought it was perhaps too early to open the bar. So my name is George Gaskell, I'm a pro-director here, and it's my pleasure to welcome you, and I will make a few comments about uh, the uh, topic we're discussing this evening, and then introduce our distinguished speakers, uh, who will speak uh, five or ten minutes on a topic of their own choosing, and then it's open to the floor. We have uh, roving microphones and we will, I hope, be taking some exciting and stimulating questions. So uh, our topic this evening is uh, science and the media, and I think lying behind this is uh, a much broader agenda which has taken on considerably more significance over the last 20 years, and that is the public engagement with science. Why, why engage people with science, one might ask? Well, I think there are a number of reasons, and I'll just highlight one or two. One is the sort of uh, end-in-itself type argument that science penetrates uh, a great deal of life. It's part of our culture, and any civilized person should be reasonably familiar with what's going on in uh, scientific uh, endeavors. Uh, a second, I think, is that science has become more prominent as scientific research tackles uh, sensitive issues, uh, issues like, say, stem cell research, cloning of animals, neurocognitive enhancement. And these become prominent because making decisions about such topics is not merely based on an assessment of the risks and benefits. Uh, all of those topics essentially intersect with values, uh, and so ethical considerations come to bear on whether uh, some forms of cognitive neuroenhancement should take place, whether we should uh, do research on human embryonic stem cells, a topic which went through the European Court of Human Rights just recently. And once ethics emerges, then, in a way, the debate extends beyond science and scientific risk assessment. It has to take into account social values. And a third reason why I think engagement becomes more important was evidenced in uh, the American Academy for the Advancement of Science. A couple of weeks back, they held their annual jamboree, and the uh, President Fedorov was lamenting the um, Republican potential nominee, well, the nominees for the Republican uh, presidency business. Um, essentially, American scientists are concerned about creationism and they're concerned about anti-science. Rick Santorum was quoted as saying he didn't believe in the scientific analysis of climate change because that has not been covered in the Bible. Uh, which, you know, and for American scientists, engagement of the public is a way of, I would think, inoculating the public against 
what seems to be rampant anti-science in that society. Now, more down to earth, I would say, if one uh, looks at what's been happening in the funding agencies and in the scientific community over the last 20 years is that more scientists are taking on public outreach. More scientists think that they can leave the laboratories and the ivory towers and bring to the public the excitement and the um, in perhaps inspire younger generations to follow them into the laboratories. And finally, I would say there's an enormous public demand for science. It, science makes very good radio, makes very good television, some notable uh, contributors to that in this country, and it also makes for good books. And we have four people here, so we're right down to earth, who are significant authors and uh, popularizers of science in parallel to their proper work and publishing in arcane and completely incomprehensible journals. So this evening I would welcome on uh, my uh, extreme left is Jim Al-Khalili. He's a professor of physics at the University of Surrey and also a professor of public engagement in science. He presents the scientific life on BBC Radio 4 at the inconvenient time of 9 o'clock in the morning. And he has a book which I hope will be available uh, in the uh, part outside the lecture theatre called Pathfinders, the Golden Age of Arabic Science. Next door to me is Mark Henderson, who is the head of communications at the Wellcome Trust, the Wellcome Trust being one of the biggest funders of biological science in this country. Uh, Mark was the science editor for the Times newspaper, and he has a book, 50 Genetic Ideas You Really Need to Know. That was 2009. And in May this year, he has a book with the title The Geek Manifesto, Science and Politics. I don't know whether the geek there is the scientist or the politician. Um, Elaine Fox, Professor of cognitive neuroscience and psychology at uh, the University of Essex and currently spending a, a year at Magdalen College. Her work is on the neurocognitive bases of emotional vulnerability and resilience. Elaine had a book uh, in 2008, Emotion in Science, and has a new book coming out in May of this year with the nice title of Rainy Brain, Sunny Brain. And this is uh, part of her work which identifies potentially genetic bases to uh, people's tendency to be optimistic or pessimistic and depressed. And finally on my right, Danny, uh, Pedro Ferreira is a professor of astrophysics at uh, Oriel College, Oxford. His book of 2006 was called The State of the Universe, and this is a widely acclaimed uh, popular book on uh, modern cosmology. Uh, it turns out the Big Bang theory is probably not quite right. The universe is expanding. There are things called dark matter and dark energy, uh, and so forth. <laughs> uh, you have to read the book. <laughs> uh, 
And finally, I, I probably should just say one thing. I believe Jim Alcalili has probably got his boxer shorts on today. <laughs> uh, when the scientists at CERN observing neutrinos zipping backwards and forwards decided one was going faster than the speed of light, he said if that was corroborated, he would eat his boxer shorts on television. And uh, fortunately, they found the electric circuitry was a bit um, iffy, um, something of that, and uh, maybe they overestimated the speed, so at least no speeding fine for neutrinos. So we're going to start with uh, Jim. Okay. Please. Thank you, George. Well, good evening, everyone. You said there's no champagne. This is neat vodka. So we're well, well set up. Um, I, the message I wanted to get across, I realise as I'm sort of writing notes, getting my thoughts in order, it's essentially a, a, a series of anecdotes about my experiences in, in the media, but I hope there'll, there'll be some sort of a coherent message coming out of it. Um, I began science communication not reluctantly, but not really knowing what was in store. And when I began in the sort of early mid-90s, there was no such thing as public engagement in science, certainly not something that I'd heard of. And it was very much what we now refer to as the deficit model of, of science communication, public understanding of science, whereby the experts, the, the, the academics, the professors, uh, will stand up and deliver uh, a lecture, in non-technical language while the audience are, are the empty vessels in awe uh, uh, and, 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 uh, and says, fill me with your knowledge. I, Brian Cox still does that, and so that, but that's, that's fine. There's, there's room for that. Um, but what's changed is it's become a, a two-way uh, exchange and, and so the, the, the public at large uh, can expect the scientific community to explain concepts and ideas that are of interest to them, that, that, that it's a two-way dialogue rather than just a one-way sort of core dump of information, scientific information. So I got involved, I, really I, I followed the normal, the traditional academic path uh, of after PhD, um, doing uh, several postdocs and churning out research papers and writing research grants but gradually getting more involved in the usual sort of way that many scientists you know, venture very tentatively poking a toe in the water, giving talks to local schools, writing the odd magazine article or doing sort of a local radio interview about some aspect of their, their research. And I was very much warned off this by senior colleagues saying that, look, you know, you're at a position, a stage in your career where you should focus entirely on your research. Communicating science, whether it's through the media or whether it's directly to the public through public lectures and so on, is something that should be left to either to those who are not research active or those who've, who've done their bit and, and, and want to sort of, uh, you know, they, they, they want to branch out into something else. Um, and I ignored that advice and I'm glad I did because I, I think I'm of a generation where, you know, we're the first, we're first for, for, for a very long time. Of, of academic scientists who, who are able, who are, have been allowed the space and time to communicate science. We haven't had to give up our academic credibility is, is, is the, the term that other academics would use. Um, one colleague, I think, uh, 
most of my colleagues have been very supportive in what I've done, but one, one colleague in, in particular, I remember some years ago, introduced me to someone as, this is Jamal Khalili, he used to be a physicist. <laughs> because I wasn't publishing quite at the rate that he was, um, and I wasn't attending every international conference in nuclear physics that he was, and so he saw that somehow that I'd, I'd sold out. Um, I want to say a little bit about my experience of science in, in broadcasting, but I, I'll just say, say one or two words about uh, early experiences, because I think we're going to, there's going to be a mix of, of you know, positive and negative um, stories from, from the panel about our interactions with, with, with the media, with journalists, and it, it wasn't all rosy for me. I remember about 96 or 97 being part of a, a panel, a European-wide group of nuclear academics who um, uh, were embarking on this mission to um, dispel the negative image surrounding nuclear physics, that we were not part of the nuclear industry, we were not building weapons, we were trying to understand the structure of the atomic nucleus and, and this was sort of fundamental pure science. And um, uh, a science correspondent, um, Steve Connor from The Independent, came along to our meeting and wrote up a very nice article about what we were trying to do. But of course, and this was an early experience for me of how newspapers work, Mark will, will, will know this very well, the science correspondents can write a very nice piece and be quite sympathetic and be, you know, on our side. But of course, the, the sub-editor of the newspaper decides, A, where the, the article goes, or whether, you know, how much of it remains, but also what the heading would be. So there's an article about how nuclear physicists, we're not, we're trying to dispel this negative image. And the headline was, um, scientists try to nuke their image, <laughs> which completely defeated the object. And many of the, my colleagues on this panel became very disillusioned that, that somehow journalists and the media are, are against us. And, but I've gradually learnt, and this is the message I get across to certainly younger um, academics who want to get involved in science communication, that journalists are not there to destroy your career, to ridicule you. But then neither are they there to, to plug your area of research. They're there because they want, they want a good story. And if you provide them with a good story, then you're doing half their job for them. Uh, so, so I gradually got more and more involved in, in, in science communication. I, I was aware that there was, you know, there was still this two cultures divide. And certainly in, in broadcasting, there were still the, you know, the dinosaurs who, you know, the, the sort of, well, I remember being on Newsnight once, and, and, and Jeremy Paxman, I, I was talking about the importance of, and I sort of knew what he would, how he would come at this. And he said, well, does it really matter if we don't, if not everyone knows that, you know, the chemical symbol for sodium or that quarks are the fundamental building blocks of matter? And, you know, my response is still this, that, you know, of course, it's not important that everyone should know that. But then how important is it that we know who painted the Mona Lisa? how important is it that we know who wrote Romeo and Juliet? You know, these are such obvious things that you don't have to be a highly educated and enlightened society to have a basic um, amount of knowledge as part of our culture. And there are certain areas of science that I think everyone should know about, not just how science works and scientific method, but actually just stuff about our universe and our place in the universe I think is important and I think that's an attitude that's changing and it certainly seems to be changing in, in broadcasting so I 
spent probably half my time now doing television and radio. And um, George, it's the life scientific, not scientific life. Oh, just, okay. And if you can't catch it at 9am, it's on at 9.30pm and also downloadable and on iPlayer, etc. <laughs> um, but that's a wonderful example. Um, Gwyneth Williams, who's, who's, uh, who took over as control of Radio 4 last year, she came in with this passion for getting more science onto Radio 4. And, um, and, and she was adamant that there was going to be a, a 9 o'clock slot. So this is a, the golden slot on Radio 4 after the Today programme. And you have 5, 6 million listeners to the Today programme. Of course, many of them have to go to work, which is why the average um, age of the listeners to the Life Scientific is about 62, um, which is fine. I don't have a problem with that. But, uh, you know, it, it's what is wonderful is that science seems now, certainly in many um, platforms, across, certainly across the BBC, to be gradually embedding itself into popular culture. It's no longer, you know, and finally, boffins in some, at University X have discovered that such or their latest study has suggested that it's become something that, why, why not? Why not interview these, these great figures in science who many in you know, the general public don't know about, when if they were great figures in music or, 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 or art or uh, um, architecture or, or, or you know, any other avenue of popular culture, we wouldn't think twice about you know, thinking they were, they were worthy of being uh, appearing on, on a show. But um, uh, the fact that scientists are now being allowed to talk about their passions and their experiences and they're just they're people like everyone else I think is a, a, a sure sign that science is gradually embedding itself in popular culture and I think the UK is way ahead of any other every other country in the world when it comes to engaging the public with science and science becoming just part of the, the general dialogue and it's not just faster than light neutrinos or, or switching on of the large hadron collider or, or the big stories in, in, in genetics Science is now becoming something that I think people don't mind talking about, and we're seeing that we have an upturn in the number of students applying to do science degrees, and particularly in, in, in physics. Um, uh, you know that uh, it's, it's not just—I mean, a lot of it is the Cox, the Brian Cox effect. I, you know, we have to say that Brian, you know. Not everyone will enjoy his programs because those programs aren't aimed for them. But to, to, to talk about the second law of thermodynamics on BBC Two to four or five million people who would never have thought about listening and watching a programme on science is just a sign of how far we've come and long may it continue. Thank you. Thanks very much, George, and good evening, everybody. Um, well, in some ways, uh, um, as I've, I got into this really, well, first of all, for many, many years, as many academics and many scientists, I worked away quite happily in my lab, publishing in, as George says, arcane journals that probably 10 or 20 people in the world were interested in, um, and really the general public or the media weren't particularly interested in, in what I was doing. And that all changed very suddenly for me when I took over and ran um, quite a large research program at the University of Essex, looking at the effect of mobile phone signals on our cognitive functioning and 
on our health. Um, and this became very big news in terms of the media. And then following that, I did a lot of work on, which is really my core work, looking at um, whether there are particular sets of genes that are um, influence the kind of brain states that underlie optimism and pessimism. So both of those topics really became quite popular, and a lot of journalists and, and the general public became quite interested in those things. So it's a little bit of, um, I was thrown in rather the deep end, particularly the mobile phone studies, because having gone from really ha having had no interaction with journalists, suddenly you know, my phone just didn't stop ringing and there was lots of TV and radio who were very interested in talking about this um, work. Now, I've had kind of both very positive and some negative experiences. I have to say most of my experiences with the media is actually very positive. I think my impression has been that most journalists are very interested in really trying to get the kernel of the story and trying to present it as accurately as possible. Um, very much um, as Jim was saying, I've had exactly the same experience where often you'll find a, an excellent article um, after a long interview, say with a, usually a science journalist, they've produced the article very well, it's all the nuances, it's very well presented, but the headline completely blows the whole article, which is very, very depressing, which is obviously generally not the fault of the journalist, it's usually an editor who picks the headline. Um, one example, a little kind of bugbear of mine with the mobile phone studies, the, the basic findings that we found over and over again was that when we presented um, people with um, the electromagnetic fields for mobile phones under conditions where people didn't know whether the machine was on or off, generally we found that people's symptoms and their memory problems um, didn't occur, so they weren't related to the mobile phone signals. Um, often, um, and I absolutely, when I spoke to journalists, said this doesn't mean the, the symptoms don't exist, they're absolutely there, they're absolutely real, but they're caused by people's fears about the mobile phones rather than the mobile phone signals and there's you know 60 70 years of research in psychology demonstrating that our thoughts and our beliefs can lead to these changes in 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 our bodies and in, in our brains um, but invariably even though the article might have been very good that was actually written often the headline was psychologist says it's all in the head you know these symptoms don't exist and constantly that was a kind of headline which was very very depressing really because that's not what we were saying and that's not what we found a similar thing um, happens often with the optimism work and the optimism gene, as it's often been reported. Again, the story is far more interesting, I think, and far more subtle than the idea that there's a gene that underlies depression or underlies optimism. It's very much certain genes do tip our brain states into a situation where we're more or less responsive to what happens in the environment. So it's a very subtle and, I think, quite an interesting way the environment and the genes actually work together to produce different types of brain states. But again, the, even though the article might have been very good in the media, invariably the headline was, happiness is all in the, in the genes. So we have a single gene that leads to optimism, which again doesn't really get the subtlety of, of often what's in, in the article. As a more general point, I think one of the things that I've found as, as um, an academic engaging with the media, kind of really, especially in the early days, well, so I did find a really large difference between working with science journalists from other newspapers or from, uh, from say, the BBC 
and, and invariably the experience there was very, very good. Often the science journalists obviously would know a little bit about the science, they would report the, in, the data very accurately. But when the story becomes newsworthy, as with, say, the mobile phone work in particular, and then you deal with news journalists, there I found actually things got very different. And um, again, just kind of picking up on what Jim was saying, I had this, a similar experience. You know, I'm sure that if, you, if a newspaper had an arts correspondent, I don't think they would ever go to an art exhibition and start off by saying, well, now I know nothing about art, I'm not really interested in art, but I'm here to report on this exhibition. Whereas invariably, the number of times somebody rang me up from a newspaper saying, um, I'm not a science journalist, you know, I know nothing about science, I'm not really interested in science, but I want to tell you a story, and can you explain to me what it's all about? I think it's this kind of cultural expectation that I think most people would not admit to not knowing at least some of the fundamentals of art and literature and some of our great writers. Um, but I think there is this acceptance still in many quarters that it's fine not to know anything about science or you know, not to even pretend to know anything about science. So I think there's a big difference there between science journalists and news journalists. I think that's a wider kind of cultural issue, which interestingly, um, in the Dimbley lecture last night, Sir Paul Nurse, the head of the Royal Society, made that point very clearly. I think that you know, we need a much, I think, a, a, a more cultural acceptance of, of science and, and, and the importance of it to society. And then just finally, really, um, I think there's another issue which I think I found quite a lot, particularly talking about health-related research. I think within the media, my impression is that there's often this impression that we have to have an absolute balance in how science is reported. And what I found with this is that sometimes quite good science can be undermined by minority views, often based on very, very weak evidence. Um, particularly my own experience with the mobile phone studies, this is often the case where there are some action groups, which is fine, they have their opinions, but often these action groups really form their opinions on very, very weak and very shaky evidence. But yet, in any article reporting the science, it always seems that the last paragraph would be given to somebody's opinion, not based on the science, which would often undermine the whole story. Um, and it seems to me that this seems to be something that happens in health-related research much more than any other type of research. I've never seen a report, for example, um, again, if we go back to Brian Cox, if Brian Cox talks about the universe or a particular planet, you, know, you don't, I don't think journalists feel obliged to give an, an opinion from the Flat Earth Society at the end of that, whereas in health-related research there does seem to be that, that need to produce the opinion of, of various different action groups. So I think that's kind of another general issue, which I think is, is, is quite interesting. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. Um, so I, I, as George said, I work in cosmology. I, I work in a field which is very media-friendly. Um, newspapers like the kind of stuff we do a lot. Um, what I'm going to try and just very briefly discuss, and this, is, this arises from sitting in my department and talking to my colleagues who do not work in cosmology, um, what the view is from people in science. And you know, clearly we want, to, we want, to, we want to, to have very good relationships with the media. We want to take part in, in this communication. Why? Because you know, we love what we do and we want to show people um, what we do. Um, we like the fame. Uh, we feel a certain duty because, because we're, you know, we're, we're paid by the taxpayer, so we should tell people what we're doing. It actually helps our funding, I think, because of the kind of things that I do and people in my area do. We end up attracting private donors, which in these times is excellent. And oddly enough, 
um, one of my colleagues, Chris Lintot, who runs something called the Zooniverse, pointed out that it can actually affect your citations. So there are all these cynical and non-cynical reasons for, for wanting to engage with the media. Now, what does the media want? The media want, as Jim said, they, they want interesting stories. And what you end up finding is that interesting stories mean, means what? It either means that there are a few topics that they really like, and in my field, they love um, black holes or the beginning of time, things like that. So if you've got the right buzzwords, you'll get their attention. They love personalities, so of course Einstein or Hawking or Penrose. And one of the things that they love, uh, uh, one of the, the, the kinds of personalities that they love are iconoclasts. So they like Penrose coming along and saying that everyone's wrong about the Big Bang. Or they like some surfer dude in Hawaii coming along and constructing a unified theory of everything, even though it's completely wrong. It's the kind of thing that gets, gets the press's attention. They also like big events. They like big events like uh, neutrinos going faster than the speed of light. So there's a little bit of a, 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 um, a disjunct between how we would like our interaction with the media to be and what actually happens. But we try, and so what do we do? And It's very interesting. This has developed a lot over the last 15 years. We think, when, uh, when we do stuff, when we come up with results, we think if, it make, if there's any point in writing a press release, you know, every now and then one of us will get in touch with the Oxford Press Office and say, look, I've just done this, could we put out a press release, which is interesting. Um, we respond to press requests very, you know, very easily. If, if a journalist calls up, immediately we find someone who, who will answer. And I would even argue that some people tweak their titles of their papers in such a way that they might get the press's attention. So it's a kind of uneasy uh, relationship between the people who do the science and, and the people who do the media. But I sit in my cafeteria and I ask my colleagues, um, you know, how do you feel about the press? And on the one hand, they say it's fantastic. It's absolutely fantastic. Now more than ever, people pay attention to what we do. And it's absolutely great. And that's how it should be. It's, uh, the, the, the community is becoming cultivated with regards to science. They're also annoyed as hell because they're annoyed as hell at who the stories that get picked up. Um, you will have, uh, you, you will find that things which are not mainstream, which are odd, but are kind of intriguing and, and newsworthy, get picked up. Typically, these things are by people who are either big names or iconoclasts. So, um, so you end up having people <coughs> who are brought out of, uh, you know, who, who are brought out, you know, the, the mass of scientists who are, you know, brought to prominence who don't really represent the rest of the people doing science and and then the worry is how it's reported and you know we've had a few examples um, of, of, of how things are, are misreported so on the one hand you know it's fantastic I think it really is fantastic on the other hand we still don't seem to get away between this slight disconnect between what scientists actually do and how it's reported now the thing is this isn't new and this isn't new and I you know I, I if you look back at the history, for example, of my field, the history of general relativity, these kind of things have happened again and again. For example, there was a, there was a, a Cambridge astronomer, Arthur Eddington, who went to, to the Gulf of Guinea and he made a measurement and he measured the bending of light by the sun. And this was fantastic because basically this disproved Newton and proved Einstein. And he, he, you know, he, he presents his results at the Royal Astronomical Society in 1919, and the next day, headlines all over England, and in the next few days, all over the world. Einstein, you know, uh, Einstein, new God, Einstein, Newton is, is Newton, who's a god, is completely 
um, deposed. So, you know, the iconoclast, there's, you know, some personality aspect. Einstein, who in the 1940s was a complete oddball, you know, he did great things in his youth, he did absolute crap when he got, when, in his old age. And if he made an utterance about the work he was doing, the New York Times would pick it up immediately. Einstein has come up with a new unified theory uh, of the universe. And Einstein would have to come out in public and say, no, no, I haven't, actually. <laughs> it's not what I've done. Um, and the same way, uh, scientists trying to manipulate the media with press releases. Fred Hoyle, again, a very important um, uh, astrophysicist. In the 1940s, he came up with a completely alternative model of the universe, what's, what was known as the steady state, something completely against everyone else's theories. He was pretty much dissed and dismissed by his colleagues. He was given the opportunity by the BBC to do a series of radio programs um, to describe cosmology. And, you know, they're, they're these classic radio programs. They brought people like Penrose and Hawking into, into to physics. But in, this, in this, these radio programs, he Basically, he uh, described his own theory in, in a glowing light, and he completely destroyed, or he thought he destroyed, the Big Bang Theory, which is what we work with today. And, uh, and people took that away. You know, people really, you know, the steady state was, became firmly entrenched in, 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 in popular opinion, and he was hated by his colleagues. He was completely hated by what he'd done. So the point is, this has always happened. I think it's always going to happen. I think we're always going to have to live with this uneasy relationship. And I think we might have to try to figure out how to make it better. But um, I think it's here to stay. So thank you. I'm uh, uh, Mark Henderson. I, uh, I'm now at the Wellcome Trust as uh, Head of Communications. I started just after Christmas. But uh, for, for 15 years before that, I was a, a journalist at The Times and, and spent 11 of those years uh, as a science editor. So um, I can talk a bit about some of the experience of what it is to be a science journalist, but, but also to, to sort of run through maybe some of the the reasons why some of the breakdowns that I think Jim and, and um, Pedro and, and Elaine have all uh, referred to here. Um, it's it's rather interesting moment to, to be doing this. Obviously, my book, The Geek Manifesto, which is, is broadly about science and politics, um, it really is talking, uh, what, it, what it really argues for is a bigger role for science, um, particularly science as a method, in the kind of national conversation. And obviously the media falls into that in a big way. Uh, it, it's, it's the sea in which everything else swims, and so it's very important. Um, I've also, interestingly, just been involved in uh, preparing the Wellcome Trust's uh, submission to the Leveson Inquiry. Uh, you may not have picked up that uh, Leveson actually specifically asked for submissions about science reporting uh, because of concerns about the way in which uh, uh, some of the distortions that, that, that we've heard about, particularly there from, from Pedro, can actually uh, kind of have a lasting effect uh, on the uh, esteem in which science is held and, and indeed sometimes on public health. Um, so. I mean, my, 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 my starting point is, as, as I think Elaine and, and Jim both said, there is much more that is good in, in science media than bad, and that's particularly true, I think, when we're talking about science as covered uh, by science specialists. Um, the vast majority of them do genuinely want to get things right. Uh, they uh, are not interested in writing crap for the sake of writing crap. Um, but that said, 
there are a number of ways in which things regularly uh, go wrong. Um, it's also important to, to, to say as a kind of um, uh, starting point to, to, to what I'm going to talk about that the biggest mistake I think you can make about uh, talking about science in the media is to treat the media as a single noun rather than a plural noun. Uh, the media covers a vast spectrum from perhaps the Times and the Financial Times and the FT uh, and the, the Guardian and, and much of the BBC at one end through to perhaps uh, the Daily Express at the other end and uh, really to characterise the coverage of science um, uh, in, one, in those two different forums as in any way similar would be, would be very unfair and uh, so I think that is quite an important thing to remember. But what I thought I'd do is first of all talk about some of the different ways in which I think go, things go wrong and then I'll talk about why they go wrong and then I'll talk about a few things we might start to do about them. So um, I've got five broad areas in which go, things go wrong. Um, the first one is scares. Uh, the scare story, the sort of thing that, uh, that Elaine was talking about in relation to mobile phones. Uh, we have, of course, um, the MMR vaccine was the, perhaps the classic example where um, sections of the media, and it's important again to remember that even with MMR, which was greatly fermented by certain sections of the media, there were always journalists who were very sober all the way through pointing out that actually uh, this Wakefield scare was nothing more than a scare and there wasn't really any data behind it. Uh, but the, the, the narrative of a scare is always tremendously attractive to, to, to the media. Uh, people, uh, by and large, are interested in reading things about things that might potentially do them harm. Uh, as a result of, they're also very interested, uh, as I think Pedro alluded to, in the narrative of the uh, um, heroic maverick who is uh, fighting a, a holy war almost against uh, the establishment seeking to suppress uh, their radical theory. Now, um, scientists who tend to take that viewpoint like to compare themselves to, to Galileo but uh, there's the, also the famous uh, Marx Brothers thing about uh, kind of um, they said that uh, Einstein was, uh, was, was mad and he was a genius. They said Galileo uh, was mad and he was a genius. They said my Uncle Louis was mad and he was. Uh, there are a lot more Uncle Louis in science than there are uh, uh, Galileos and Einsteins. So that's the first area in which you get breakdown after breakdown. Um, the, the flip side of scares uh, is hype, where uh, you end up with uh, the B word and the C word, which I tried to ban from my journalism, which is breakthrough and cure. Uh, very, very rare that scientific discoveries are actually either, and yet it's much easier to present a story as newsworthy if you are making uh, that claim. Uh, a particular example of the kind of uh, way in which this works is the, um, uh, the story where there, there was one actually which I, I wrote about in a book, which is um, uh, a, a story that was in the Telegraph uh, last year, a splash, front page splash, uh, which was saying that a new heart drug was better than statins. Um, and uh, it's only when you get to paragraph 12 of this story that you realise it has so far only been tested on mice. Now, um, being a mouse with cancer is brilliant, we can cure you, but uh, unfortunately we're not, we're not mice, and uh, the vast majority of uh, 
treatments that, uh, that, that do work on mice don't end up working on humans, unfortunately. Uh, the real problem with the scare, first of all, with the, 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 the hype story, first of all, it can raise false hope among patients. I think you've seen that with a lot of kind of uh, uh, supposed stem cell cures for things like MS, which actually can cause real harm. Um, but also, I think it, uh, it, it causes overall damage to the, the general reputation of science. It, it creates a situation where scientists are, can be portrayed as if they're always promising and never delivering. And I think that can be terribly uh, damaging. A, a, a similar form of damage is, is inflicted by what I'd call perhaps the silly story, the story that says, why the hell are scientists spending their money on that? Uh, you get these with cod formulas about uh, the perfect formula for the perfect cup of tea, that kind of thing. Uh, again, they're, they're harmless on one level, but on one level I think they actually uh, uh, cause a degree of, um, of, of damage to the reputation of science by um, sort of almost causing it to be held in contempt in, in, in some respects. I think some of the stuff about the LHC going to cause a, a black hole that could destroy the universe fell into that category as well. It was a trivialization that I think is deeply unfair. Um, there are stories that are just simply wrong, um, and it, in those cases it can often be quite hard to get those uh, corrected. And then finally, uh, there's, there's the problem of phony balance, which, uh, um, again, you alluded to, where you might have uh, a story about a certain uh, type of science. Climate change is a great example at the moment, where because one side has their say, the other side has to have uh, their say as well. It's a particular problem in broadcast, uh, largely because I think uh, broadcast editors tend to think well we can just cover this the same way we cover politics so if you have the Tories on you've got to have Labour on as well well science doesn't actually work like that there are sometimes uh, answers that are much more right and much more wrong uh, it can create as it certainly did during the MMR fiasco uh, a, a, a sense in the public that actually the scientific community is divided on something where actually that simply isn't the case. So those are, those are the main issues. Um, why do these things happen? I mean, some of them are just to do with uh, the structure of journalism and the structure of news. I mean, something I always say when I talk to scientists is it's a mistake to ever think that, um, that, that journalists have some kind of duty to tell things as you would like them to. Um, journalists are ultimately in a business, and their business is attracting people uh, to read or watch or listen to uh, their product. Um, they are ultimately selling something, and there are multiple ways to sell something. You can sell things uh, by sensationalism, and that is a way that certain aspects of the media try to do it. You can also sell things by uh, um, trying to acquire a reputation for trustworthiness um, so that uh, uh, people will go preferentially to you because they think you're going to give them an accurate version. Um, but uh, it's important not to start thinking that, that, that actually hectoring and, and uh, appealing to a sense of duty or responsibility is necessarily going to get you very far. You need to make it worth people's while. Um, 
There are, there are issues such as simply the deadlines on which journalists work, often very, very short, a couple of hours. The workload that journalists have, uh, very often people will be asked to write three, four stories in a day. They don't have time to fact-check things the way that we would all like that to happen. Um, journalists very often have very few words to play with. Uh, a typical uh, two-minute uh, news report might have only 100 words in it, 150 words in it. It's tremendously difficult to write concisely and accurately like that, and mistakes happen. But there are, there are some more sort of pernicious things as well that I think lead to this. One, one is the esteem, the general esteem in which I think science is held in the media ecosystem. It is, as Jim alluded to, certainly improving. But if you compare uh, the role that science has in the media to the esteem in which the arts are held, or business, or sport, or these other walks of life, it is not by any stretch of the imagination similar. Uh, I know of no newspaper editors or senior television or radio editors who actually either really have a background in science or a background in reporting or presenting science, whereas there are very, very many who have a background in politics or in business or even in sport. So um, I think that's something that could definitely improve. Um, I think uh, there's also an issue um, the other way around with, with actually the scientific community. Uh, again, this is definitely improving, but has historically, and still in some cases continues, uh, to sneer at people who actually make an effort. Uh, Jim's example about the colleague challenging him, uh, I know and I think Jim will know uh, as well of at least one person at the moment who's relatively prominent communicator of science whose academic department essentially told them that they had to stop doing their engagement work or they had to leave. Um, this does continue to go on. Uh, a lot of physicists sneer at Brian Cox. I think that is a mistake. Uh, the Science Media Centre, when it was started 10 years ago, started up with the premise that the media will get better at doing science when science gets better at doing the media. Uh, that's clearly started to happen, uh, but there's still a long way to go. Um, so what else can we do about it apart from encouraging scientists to get more involved with and engage? And First of all, I think when scientists do engage in the media, you, it has to be done uh, on a realistic basis. It has to be done on the basis of actually thinking, well, okay, what are the challenges that journalists are facing at the moment and how can we actually help them directly to uh, write and produce better content about science, taking all of those challenges into account. It's no use saying, oh, uh, we wish that uh, the Times or the Daily Mail had ten uh, specialist science correspondents who uh, each write one piece a week and really research it and fact check it properly because that unfortunately in the current economic situation of the media is just not going to happen. Um, structures can help and one of the, the, the things that um, we were very keen at the Wellcome Trust to promote in uh, the, our Leveson evidence was the idea that certainly those newspapers and, and, and broadcasters that 
actively listened to their science specialists where uh, at the times I regarded what I kept out of the paper as just as important as what I got into the paper and I was quite fortunate in having editors who, who listened to me by and large and respected my judgement on that front that doesn't apply anywhere, everywhere and it's certainly noticeable that those places where that does apply tend to cover things better uh, The Guardian has recently appointed uh, one of their uh, former science writers, James Randerson, to be uh, a news editor with specific responsibility for science and health and the environment. I think that's a very attractive model that uh, perhaps other media organisations could, could follow. Ideally, I'd like to see more editors and executives with a background either in science or in reporting science. I think that would help a great, great deal. Um, Finally, the, the, the other thing I think that everybody who cares about this can do more is complain. Um, I think that the media, by and large, uh, allow, covers science poorly when people who care about science allow that to happen. Um, we all, I think, need to do a better job of actually challenging the bad stuff. But I think we should be challenging it, by and large, in a constructive way. And I'll, I'll finish with an anecdote of, from, from, from my career, which is just after I started writing about science, um, which was uh, uh, back in 2000. I, I wrote a story based on a piece in New Scientist about uh, the, uh, the LEP, the predecessor to the um, LHC at CERN, which was being switched off just as there were sort of hints that it might have found the Higgs boson but probably hadn't and it was written in a way that was basically suggesting that all this money that had been spent on that was a waste of money because they they hadn't found the Higgs and um, Tony Weidberg who's a physicist at Oxford who I'm sure Pedro knows um, sent me an email uh, that was terrifically constructive saying look Mark you've got this really badly wrong um, but he wasn't ranting and raving about it he was saying look Particle physics is really hard. It's easy to get this stuff wrong. Um, would you like to come up and spend a day with me and my colleagues in Oxford actually uh, learning a bit about what we do uh, so we can actually give you the tools to write about this better? And I bit his hand off. Um, but it was such a great uh, way of turning a negative into a positive and actually... Uh, constructively engaging with something that uh, had appeared that was poor in the media and I won't say for a moment I made no more mistakes about particle physics after that but I certainly made fewer as, as a result of that and I think that kind of approach can be very very constructive Thank you very much indeed colleagues. Uh, so over to you folks. Uh, questions? We have some roving mics and we have a question from the gentleman in the lumberjack shirt. Um, yeah, it's because uh, Mark briefly mentioned it and just because it's a, a very sort of topical debate, a very topical example. Um, I'd be interested to hear the sort of panel's thoughts on this whole, how media has influenced and impacted on the whole climate change debate. Because on the one hand, of course, you know, it's raising awareness, it's inciting and encouraging people to take action. But on the other hand, I feel like at times it often infringes and often actually cripples the, the natural course that the scientific sort of method would take. Because as I'm sure you all know, like bad science makes often for very good headlines. And of course the whole issue is that no country can sort of settle since the Kyoto Protocol. And 
to what extent do you feel this sort of public scrutiny is, in, with the example of, of climate change, sort of adding to it and, and creating this awareness? And to what, do you, what extent do you feel that it is actually also creating, creating an issue? I'll start very briefly and say, I mean, after the, um, the uh, University of East Anglia issue with the emails coming out, I think one of the, the lessons that a lot in the, in the um, climate um, community of academics realized is that the only way to, to improve matters was to, to ask to make sure there was more transparency. Now, I, I, I take your point that that can be risky because transparency may mean that, you know, if every bit of data, every finding is, is, is blown up into, into a major discovery or the final word on the subject, then, well, that's not how science works. Uh, but I think trying to sort of hide it away or trying to not have uh, a public discussion about an issue that is so important for, for everyone, not just for the scientific community, um, you know, it, it has to be transparent. I think the scientific community have to find a way of ensuring that... Uh, the right messages get out, but, but you know, the, the word has to get out. I think it has to be discussed and debated. I, I'm happy to, I mean, I, I think it's unequivocally the case that um, much media coverage of, of climate change has distorted the debate and has, I think, given undue prominence to uh, people whose views are not by and large supported by the, the, the mainstream science community. Um, but at the same time, I think the climate science and the, the, the green community has to take a measure of responsibility for some of what has happened as well. Uh, and I think there are two, way, two, two things here. Uh, first of all, actually, in climate gate in particular, the UEA issue, the response of climate scientists at UEA and UEA itself was appalling in the fact that they sat on their hands for two weeks saying these are stolen emails, we, don't, we can't possibly comment on them, which allowed the um, deniers to essentially hold the floor more or less unchallenged for a very long time and also made matters very difficult for their allies. I mean, you had someone like George Monbiot suggesting that Phil Jones should resign I think largely because it was very difficult for uh, people to step in and robustly defend a group of scientists whose own institution was staying mum on there. So I think that was a, a really good example of how not to play the media in that sort of situation. Um, the other thing is that, is that actually people who are promoting uh, the cause of climate change, which I fully accept, um, have also sometimes been guilty of exaggerating for effect as well. Uh, you'll very often, for example, see extreme weather events being promoted by green groups as evidence for climate change now. And that, of course, means whenever there's a heavy snowfall, the Daily Mail can say, where's your climate change now? And I think that is tremendously dangerous, how that has happened. And if you're going to fight with science, you need to stay true to that science pretty much wherever it takes you. I'm interested in, particularly I'll take the BBC, uh, what filters are in place uh, at the BBC to, to, 
to analyze and decide as to whether a particular story is broadcast as news or part of a news program. Um, yesterday, as I was uh, waiting to listen to Life Scientific, I was listening to the Today program, and a bit of news came out that was absolutely shocking. It said that sleeping tablets cause death. Now, this was uh, apparently work done in the United States at an unnamed university by an unnamed body. Uh, the story went on to say that a professor in the UK at an unnamed university said the work was rubbish, and that was the story. And so I immediately wrote a letter to the BBC congratulating them on educating the British public. <laughs> now, where are the filters? Um, well, you're right. There aren't sufficient filters to, to ensure that the good science is reported. Uh, but things are moving in the right direction. Last year there was uh, what was called the Jones Report. Steve Jones, the UCL geneticist, was asked by the BBC to come in and look at how they uh, portray science and particularly this issue of balance and where, you know, where necessary. And one of the, the strongest recommendations to come out of the report that now has taken place is that the BBC have appointed a science editor, David Shookman. Um, now, my, my issue is where I agree with you. David Shookman can't oversee uh, and filter every science story across all platforms of the BBC. So I think there needs to be more David Shookmans that, that oversee this sort of. And, and you know, David himself, he's, I, mean, I, I don't know his background, and I'm not sure if he is. He does have a science background. I don't think he does. No, but, but in any case, you know. <laughs> You'd hope that yeah, at least, I mean, well, Mark doesn't have no, a science absolutely. background, but he does that's a bloody good a, job as well. Yeah. <laughs> so that's not an issue. I think that's a red herring. I think what uh, is interesting, though, with the BBC's response to the Jones report was actually the, the post that Steve Jones really recommended was not so much the post that the BBC has actually created. What, mm. what, what Jones recommended was actually a... Uh, a science editor who had really strong sort of backstage editorial presence uh, mm. to be appointed and what they've done is they've appointed an on-air yeah. science editor which is subtly different and actually they need both mm. and they've done one but not the other and it's so kind of two cheers as it were for what they've done I would say. Mm. Oh yeah, fine, thank you. Um, in certain parts of our society, obviously, religion is still held in prominence. How do we ensure that, at a grassroots level, um, the public are offered uh, the alternative of science and made sure that they're aware of the difference? You know, obviously, there's a massive struggle between religion and science now, and children in schools are, are being taught by certain different groups and specific sects of schools. And how do we ensure that science is given an equal footing, really? Well, it's, it's an interesting question and it obviously is a big debate that goes on. Um, I have to say, I think a lot of the difference between science and religion is often usually exaggerated. I'm not sure that actually the difference is, is as great as, as, as it is. I think people like uh, Richard Dawkins, for example, does tend to pick on people like creationists when he talks to religious people, whereas actually I think there are a lot of religious people who are, are all scientists and have you know, a scientific viewpoint. And I think a, a lot of scientists will see a lot of religious uh, text as a kind of a narrative, not necessarily something to be based on fact. So in a sense, I think you know, while there is an extreme debate there, I think actually if, if you really look at the nature of the debate, it's not necessarily as, as, as far apart. Um, 
as it sometimes seems. It's uh, so a lady in a striped T-shirt over there, and then in front, Richard. Hi. Um, I'm interested in journalistic responsibility for public health, because I believe it's the case that if I claim I can cure tuberculosis and I can't, I can be prosecuted. Um, if I've got no evidence for this. But the MMR scare seems to be a very similar thing where a number of newspapers and journalists um, went haywire on very, very limited evidence, result resulting in a reduction in the uptake of MMR vaccines, an increase in, um, in cases of um, MMR, and possible increases in death and disability for these children. So should we be able to bring criminal prosecutions against journalists who do this kind of thing? Would this be desirable? Would it give them the right set of incentives to get these things right? <laughs> and moreover, how easy would it be to distinguish between these cases where there really is no evidence for these alternative views about, say, MMR, or where there's just, there is quite simply a debate within the scientific community and differences of opinion about what the evidence is? Can I, can I, can I, 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 I'm not sure that criminal prosecution is the answer, although I can see why you can, in this particular instance it's rather tempting. I mean, not even Andrew Wakefield has been prosecuted over that. He, uh, he, he has been uh, struck off. But, um, but what I do think would be, would be helpful in this sort of situation is actually the, the way that the Press Complaints Commission uh, operates in this sort of situation at the moment is quite unsatisfactory where there is a, a, a situation like MMR where a body of evidence or a public health program or something is essentially what has been libeled on the back of or, or defamed on the back of, of very little evidence. The, the way in which the PCC operates by and large is that uh, if you are a named person who has been traduced or uh, misrepresented or lied about by a newspaper, then you have a right of redress and a right to, to have the PCC make an adjudication. Um, it's much harder to make a generic complaint about something in the papers that's just wrong. If Melanie Phillips, to take an example, plucked from the air at random, <laughs> makes a, a dubious assertion saying that uh, MMR is dangerous and linked to autism and, and blah, blah. Nobody as such has been directly affected by that. Therefore, it's very difficult for anybody to make a complaint. And I think that needs to change. And there needs to be a situation where actually uh, whatever succeeds the PCC following Leveson needs to actually have quite robust powers to sanction that kind of reporting. There's a lady at the back with a red scarf. And then I have a question related to science festivals um, and their role in educating the public and then changing the discourse in the media. Have you felt that science festivals, such as the Cheltenham Science Festival, changed in any way how things are being reported in, in the media about sciences? Got two people with a conflict of interest. Yes, and <laughs> we're, we're both on the steering committee for the festival, so maybe we should ask. <laughs> well, no, a declaration of interest, not a conflict of interest. No, no, a declaration of interest, isn't it? Tim? Well, I, yeah, I should say, I mean, I think the Cheltenham Science Festival in particular, what it's done, I mean, we've seen an explosion of festivals uh, around the country in recent years. Every city 
it now has almost its, its science festival and they're, they're very, very popular. The Charnam Science Festival, probably more than any other, has sort of somehow captured the, captured the public's imagination. It's very much like some of the big you know, literary festivals um, in the sense that uh, there's a whole buzz and an atmosphere about the place and it attracts some of the, the, the biggest names in science, not just science communicators, but the big, big names, you know, the, the practitioners, the pure practitioners of science. Um, Cheltenham Festival in, uh, by itself, I think, you know, when you, th you, you ask who are you talking to, who's the audience of the festival, well, these are people who go to the Cheltenham Science Festival, and, and they're people who go to Cheltenham Science Festival every year. And so, in a way, you could argue this is not really, you know, you're preaching to the converted, as it were. But what it has done is that it's given other um, groups around the country the, the stimulus and enthusiasm to organize their own science festivals. And enough of these, you know, there are, there'll be a lot of converted out there. And, and, you know, the more festivals there are, obviously, the, the, the healthier the situation is. So I think it's as a stimulus to, to, to get other, others around the country. Because until recently, there was, there was the BA Festival as was, and there was the Edinburgh Festival, and, and you know, really very, very few others of, uh, you know, that were very large at all. In the front row, please, third one in. Thank you, Richard. Hello there. I was interested in asking uh, the panel about the dismissive attitude among many scientists um, about, about public engagement with, um, um, with the media. How much do you think this is just because scientists tend to think it's a waste of time, or how much is it sometimes caused by scientists locked in their own intellectual silos fearing being laying their work open to audit by those in other disciplines and other walks of life? Can, can I say um, I, th I think it's a, it's a very interesting question and um, I was head of uh, department for the, the last couple of years and you know, I spent a lot of my time trying to persuade people to actually engage more with, with, with the media about their science. Also um, through the Science Media Centre there's a, an organisation called Voice of Young Science which has a lot of young, you know, some of the best postdocs in the country um, and trying to encourage them to engage with the media. I think one of the real difficulties um, in, for academics nowadays whether they're scientists or not really, is that there's huge pressures, just as journalists are extremely busy people, there's huge pressures. I think the modern day academic is expected to be a world leading researcher, a top class teacher, a business person, and engage with the public about lots of things. And I think there's still, it is definitely improving and it is changing, but I think there's still very much a view that you will get promoted based on how good your teaching is and how good your publications are in peer-reviewed journals. And that, it's very, very difficult to advise a young scientist to ignore that in order to do other things. But I think Jim said early, earlier, I mean, I think it really, really is improving. And I think the whole kind of outreach agenda now, people, it, it is now being accredited much more. Um, so I think in, in, in one sense, I think there are a lot of people who really do want to engage a lot more, but it often does come down to really time and whether they really feel this is really going to enhance their own career or is it going to detract from it. And it's often quite a different, difficult balancing act, I think, for, for people to do. That's I yeah. maybe should. Yeah. <laughs> um, sorry. I, know, I do think things have changed a lot over the last few years. Uh, when we apply for big grants now, that's one of the things that we have to show that we do. Um, there's the other thing which I've found very, which is very interesting is it is easier now to get media gigs or things which will involve either going doing outreach or, and a lot of my colleagues, you, you can see that they really want to do it. So I don't think there is completely that attitude um, uh, of, of, of if, if, you, if you're going to go do media, you've stopped doing research. 
uh, it can be incredibly successful. And, and so again, I, I just want to mention my, my colleague Chris Lintock did this incredible thing where he was able to associate, he was able to combine outreach with actually doing actually doing science. He needed to analyze this data set with about a million galaxies and it wasn't possible to do it properly on a computer. It's much, edit much better to have people looking at pictures and doing it. And so he was able to set up a website, Galaxy Zoom, where enlist members, members of the public would go on and classify the, these galaxies. Now it's produced a stream of very, you know, very good papers. Um, it has something <coughs> like 600,000 people um, as members of Galaxy Zoo. So it's, they have this board, you know, they have a, a written on the board, they have the, the size of the largest armies in the world. And I think the Galaxy Zoons are about the fifth largest army at the moment, or the fourth. So, you know, it, it really is. But you can actually, people are now thinking of ways of um, using outreach to actually do science. So I think it's really changed a lot. The gentleman in the middle with his hand prominent. Um, one of the things about the um, current funding situation is that increasingly um, scientific funding is based upon having a possible impact either on medicine, healthcare, or the UK economy. And I'm wondering how this pressure to always try to make the, the um, science relevant leads into the problems of hype. That that's easier to do if you're saying, oh, this is going to lead to a cure or this is going to lead to a breakthrough. Well, it sure does. Somebody did a, an analysis of a number of grant applications and uh, correlated the extent of hype. They invented a hype index and showed that the more hype, the more the higher was the probability of getting funding. So, uh, mm. indeed, no, that's think, true. I think it is a risk. I, I think that certainly some of the the cruder ways in which impact is interpreted do create the potential for effectively encouraging researchers to make things up um, and to exaggerate and I don't think that's healthy. Is there any way that that could be addressed or, or mitigated? I suppose, I mean, I think it's easier to do those assessments retrospectively than prospectively to start with. Um, I think prospective guessing as to what, what your science is going to lead to is, is potentially dangerous. Um, it, is, it is a very difficult one. I'd be interested in what you guys who are having to do these forms think about it. Um. Well, it, the impact bit, in the, when you fill in a grant, the impact, it's a nightmare. It's a complete nightmare. We still haven't figured out how to do that properly. And so we end up having things, especially in my field, which is reasonably esoteric and unimpactful. But um, we, we end up having to look back at things which have led to either technology developments or, for example, Galaxy Zoo, which has this phenomenal outreach, or things like that, and, 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 and talk about continuing things like that. But it, I think it's really difficult. It's really difficult to fill in the impact box. Yeah, I would concur totally with that, and, and I think uh, your universities all around the country now have day-long seminars and two-day seminars on, on what, what is meant by impact and how do we deal with impact, and I think none of us really quite know, and, and I think it can be quite damaging to the science because it is true that it is, it is very difficult. Sometimes the, the, the big discoveries come quite unexpectedly, and, and I think 
you know, that, that whole kind of issue is defeated here. The idea is you, we're supposed to see exactly how, what impact this is going to have. And I think it's taking up a huge amount of time and effort all around the country. And then, you know, whether it's really leading anywhere positive, I'm not, I'm not sure. Okay, the gentleman with the mic. Uh, my question's about the Brian Cox effect. So, without dumbing down or sensationalism, is it a good thing to sex up science? The Alistair Campbell approach. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I fail to see what's wrong with sexing up science. I mean, not all science needs to be sexy, uh, and not all science needs to be sexed up. But I mean, to glamorise certain areas of science, which will be of benefit to the whole of science, I, I fail to see how that could be a bad thing. You know, the, the fact that Brian Cox used to be in a pop group, well, great. It doesn't mean that everyone is going to want to watch his programmes, but then, you know, there's, uh, there's BBC Four, hopefully, still, fingers <laughs> crossed. <laughs> you know, so, so yes, I mean, I think people, people will complain because they don't like the style, but I think that's because it's, it's, it's quite new. You know, we haven't had sexy science since, I don't know, was Carl Sagan sexy science? I mean, it's, you know, but it's, yeah. but, but, you know, it's been a while <laughs> since science has been cool. I mean, you know, with Mark's book, you know, the, the, the geeks are on the march in the fact that actually it's quite cool. And not just the Brian Cox of it, what's the guy in the, the Big Bang Theory, Sheldon, the, the, the geeky, you know, he's, he's made geeky, not just, you know, cool, I was in a pop group science sexy, but pure geeky science has become sexy as well, and I think that's great. But I think what's also great here is the way in which, because of the things that, that someone like Brian has, has been doing, is actually you're starting to see science and scientific thinking actually sort of getting a bigger role in wider popular culture. I mean, if you look at uh, Darrow O'Brien's uh, stand-up and that kind of thing, where he'll just be making jokes, he'll have the Hammersmith Apollo laughing about homeopathy. That's brilliant. I mean, that is really great. And um, I think, I think the, the, the emergence of people like Brian has made it easier for people like Darrow Brian to kind, of, uh, to kind of do that and then really start to reach mass audiences. Lady, yes, and then a lady in the black behind you. Thanks. Uh, hi, my question is further to Mark's comment about people doing more to complain about science reporting. Uh, ben Goldacre has become a massively influential blogger and tweeter about bad science reporting, especially in healthcare, and I'm sure there are many others like him. Um, he's almost become known as someone who's almost anti-media or anti-PR. Um, I was wondering if you agree with his way of approaching it, and whether you think science reporters have maybe changed the way they report because um, they're afraid about what he might write? Um, yeah, that's in... Did, did everybody hear the question properly? Okay, so the, the question was about Ben Goldacre and his uh, particular approach to um, taking on bad science reporting, which can be quite aggressive and can be seen as quite anti-media sometimes. And, and is that effective and has that changed the way people write? Um, I, I think the answer... So... I uh, agree with probably about 90 to 95 percent of the stuff Ben does. Um, I think uh, where I don't agree with him, or where I think he could take a slightly different approach sometimes, is I don't think he does quite enough sometimes to praise what is good along with condemning what is bad. I'm 100 percent with him <coughs> in condemning the bad. And I think sometimes he 
is slightly apt to uh, not um, stratify the media into the things that, that, that work very well and the things that, that don't. But that said, I think that um, what Ben has brought to science journalism in the last 10 years has been enormously valuable for the very reason that you say, in that there is a cost, potentially, to writing badly about science in a national newspaper now, which is that you may be held up to ridicule by uh, an extremely uh, talented and widely read writer. And um, I know that people on the Daily Mail will... The, 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 the science writers who actually very often want to get things right but who have a hard time with their news desks sometimes um, have the option of sort of saying, well, actually, I could write it this way, but there's a chance we'll be in Ben Goldacre's column if we do it this way. And I think that's important. I, I, I think all these things matter. I mean, I, I, I think, does he slightly go too far sometimes? Yes. But is, he, is what he does extremely valuable and helpful overall? Certainly, yes.